Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the September 19th edition of Beyond the Data. Uh, today, we have two attorneys with us today, um, Warner Mendenhall and Tom Connors. They are both coming from the Akron area, and they'll be talking to us about EUAs and exemptions and how that's all working, as well as uh, personal and political action lawsuits, how these things can all fit in with what we've been talking about ad nauseum in, in terms of local issues and the COVID data. So, sorry, <laughs> I apologize, but technical difficulties, it's live, it is what it is. So. Well, well, Carrie fixes herself. Um, uh, I'd like uh, the gentlemen to, you know, kind of talk about themselves, what their their practice is about, uh, what they normally work on, and anything else about it, so we kind of learn about where they are standing here. And you guys would like to? Yeah, thank you, uh, Carrie. This is Warner Mendenhall speaking. I uh, our practice is basically what I would call an accountability practice, and. You know, we try to hold corporations and governments at local, state, and federal levels accountable to uh, their corporate charters, for example, their city charters, their state constitutions, and of course to the uh, U.S. federal constitution. And that's kind of, you know, that's why we're involved in, in this battle to the extent that we are involved in it. Um, we feel like there has been a lot of governmental overreach at every single level. Uh, and that it's violated uh, fundamental principles of our government, which is supposed to be a limited government with limited and uh, defined powers. Um, and obviously huge changes are, uh, are co have come to our society as a result of everything that's happened. And a, a lot of those I think are, are very dangerous. They're very much fear-based and uh, they are uh, very damaging to our democracy. So we have we have uh, sued cities, states, federal government. Um, we do. We also represent whistleblowers in the healthcare space, uh, based on Medicare, Medicaid fraud, um, those types of things. So so that that's the general. Um, those are the general guiding principles of our practice. Tom and I have been friends for a long time, over two decades. And um, he recently retired uh, from another firm and joined me in January of 2021 here. Uh, and even when he was with the other firm, he worked on uh, some of these cases. So go ahead and Tom, tell everybody yeah, about yourself. I'm Tom Connors. I've practiced for 35 plus years uh, in generally in uh, the areas of general civil litigation and in uh, business practice. Uh, so I'm familiar with uh, litigating and uh, do think there's going to be a need for that in this area involving the COVID mandates, but uh, that could be, that'll be very challenging. So we'll have to look at the options that exist there. Uh, so that's basically my general background. and. Uh, let you go with respect to what you think of these issues relating to COVID mandates. All right, thank you guys. So 
I have been speaking to Warner for some time now. I mean, it's been first time was like months ago, uh, then a few weeks ago. And then we, we got to meet in person about a week ago, I believe. And uh, one of the things that you were saying that you had been working on a lot lately were uh, working on those exemptions. And uh, so many people have been coming to you now because it's it's become really real to them. And if you'd like to speak about that a little bit. Yeah, I can speak generally about it. Obviously, unless there's a lawsuit, then you know most of what we're doing is behind the scenes, working with people, and it's very private. Um, we are working with. I mean, if we counted up the various groups that we are consulting with now, uh, we are probably close to 550 people in the various groups, and we represent. At this point, we're working with students. Uh, nurses are a very large group, and we're also advising some police union groups. Um, the police, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, some of the uh, police unions are very opposed to these uh, vaccines, uh, as well as the fire unions. Um, so they, you know, and, and here in Akron, uh, you know, when they tried to say people couldn't get together at Thanksgiving uh, last year, and passed a local ordinance with a civil penalty for 30 days if people got together, the uh, police union head simply came out and said, hey, we're not going to enforce that. That's not that's not what we do. <clears throat> so I thought that was very interesting uh, that the police union leader was willing to be that public about it, just defiant of the city council and the mayor here in Akron. Um, so, and I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, it's great to see that recognition by police of our civil liberties. I don't think, you know, I don't think people, especially with the, you know, Black Lives Matter movement and other things that have been going on, I, I, I think there's been, you know, a lot of concern about policing and, and maybe there should be in certain areas, but there are police uh, unions that do care about civil liberties and they understand the impact of these violations on the community and how dangerous they are. Um, you know, and they're also dangerous in terms of undermining the role of policing. Policing should be about crimes. Um, you know, and the city council had passed this civil uh, penalty uh, if people got together over Thanksgiving, uh, you know, in, in groups of, you know, whatever it was, more than five uh, beyond your family members. So. You know, it was heartening to see the uh, police come forward on that. We have also heard from nurses literally at this point throughout Ohio, from southern Ohio up to Lake Erie and certainly locally here. Um, we seem to be getting calls from nurses around the state at this point. And they're, they're very, very concerned. And I think the nurses' concerns, you know, a lot of it uh, comes from the fact that Many of the nurses believe they're seeing vaccine injured patients. And I think that's given them a lot of pause. Even if at one point they had been thinking about taking the vaccine, I've heard from a number of them that that has changed their minds. So I, um, and, and the reasons for their exemptions, some are medical, uh, they have medical conditions and they don't want those underlying medical conditions to be affected by a vaccine uh, and others have religious exemptions and they feel uh, that their religious beliefs um, would be violated if they took the vaccine. 
it, it's interesting because we have been reviewing the statements, you know, both the medical statements and the religious exemption statements. And one of the things that, you know, concerned me is essentially that the statements are very, very personal. And, and one of the things that people, I think, don't always realize is that the First Amendment also protects your right not to speak. It's not just your right to speak, it's your right not to speak. And I feel like, you know, when I'm reading uh, the religious exemptions, I feel like I'm being, um, you know, the person's soul literally is sometimes being revealed to you in their writing about their religious beliefs. And I don't think that that is even appropriate. I don't think it's appropriate for the employer to be asking for people to make these types of statements that delve into their personal beliefs, that delve into their personal history, and, and even to some extent that delve into the medical history that people have. And I, I did hear um, from a couple of nurses who have medical issues that they don't want to reveal to the employer. And, you know, we all... We all think we have medical privacy. Uh, we all think HIPAA applies. You know, why are we forced, uh, if you're asking for a medical exemption, to A, make a statement revealing what your medical conditions are, which some people do hold very privately. And then B, in some of the cases, the nurses have turned over a ton of medical records to their employer to try to prove it. Now, while I think that helps bolster the case for their exemption to hand over those medical records, what right does the employer have, even if it's a hospital, to see those medical records if, if the person doesn't want to show them? So, um, and then on the student side, I mean, we, we kind of have a, a little different thing going on with students because we do have a state law that has passed at least for the public schools, but students are also being pressured to take the vaccines. Um, and, and um, you know, we, we haven't we haven't had many responses yet uh, from the colleges and the universities about whether they're approving those or not. And let me give you a general idea. Uh, on the religious exemption, so far, everybody we've worked with has gotten the religious exemption. So that, you know, does seem to be something that the you know, medical providers, uh, medical institutions don't really want to go after. They don't want to challenge that. On the other hand, on the medical exemption side, um, some have been granted, but I already know of a few that haven't been granted. And um, that does concern me. I mean, in, in the medical exemptions that have been turned in uh, that I know about personally, uh, they've all had a doctor sign off on the medical exemption. So in essence, the healthcare institution is saying, hey, we know better than your doctor as to whether that exemption uh, for a medical reason uh, should, should apply here. The final thing that I think um, on the exemptions that uh, I think many people don't realize is that your exemption based on religion uh, is really broader than just religion. Everybody thinks just religion. Well, it goes broader than that. Um, even non-theistic ethical beliefs 
can be the basis for an exemption. I think people need to know that. Um, you know, obviously, the classical religious beliefs, you know, everybody recognizes that, but also non-theistic and, and sometimes even non-traditional views uh, will qualify for that exemption. I think it's important for people to know that if they have a strongly held belief that um, is telling them not to take the vaccine, that's a legitimate request for an exemption. And they need to go ahead and submit those. I'm going to talk to that. Uh, as a practical matter, the uh, exemptions are the route we think will be uh, the most straightforward means of avoiding the, the COVID mandate. And uh, with respect to those, the main two types are the religious and the medical. We think the religious is the one that will uh, permit uh, court action that would preclude uh, the mandate. Uh, it's, it's a little dicier with the medical because uh, other reasons that I'll discuss. But first, let me talk about the religious exemption and uh, the, 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 the root is the constitutional protection, but um, that in terms of getting legal relief will work only against uh, government uh, employers. And that would be straightforward with respect to enforcing uh, constitutional limits on the government. Uh, however, even uh, non-government employers um, will uh, be limited, uh, will have to respect religious exemptions because of federal and state EEOC statutes, which define uh, employment relationships and preclude discrimination based on religion. Now, uh, with regard to uh, obtaining the religious exemption, uh, the law is uh, interesting and it would be helpful, I think, to go through that. Uh, the courts are not going to be looking at the logic or the rational or, or, or trying to judge whether or not these re the religious reasons are valid. Uh, the only element that they're going to judge in this area will be whether or not the religious belief is sincere. So uh, the, the, if you, you know, present uh, a set of reasons consistent with your religious beliefs as to why you believe that those you know, your beliefs are such that uh, the vaccine would contravene those beliefs, you uh, should be able to get a religious exemption. And the descriptions, the discussions that we've seen uh, involve things such as, uh, well, uh, first, there's uh, in involvement on the abortion issue, fetal cells were involved in some way in the production of the vaccine. So if um, you object to that aspect of the vaccines, that uh, should permit you to have a religious exemption. Uh, but there's other more broader reasons. People talk about uh, uh, Christian beliefs relating to uh, their body being a temple of the Holy Spirit, and then uh, 
respecting their body and thinking and believing that the vaccine would be uh, harming their body and that that's inconsistent with their beliefs. Uh, the uh, counterpoint, some people want to push back on the religious exemption saying, well, now wait, if, if your reasoning is really philosophic or scientific, you're not entitled to, uh, uh, it's not really a religious belief that is uh, forming the basis for your request. And I think that's a basic misunderstanding. Uh, the Supreme Court has said, for instance, if you're involved in a business activity, you are entitled to engage in business activity in accordance with your religious beliefs. That business and religion are not mutually exclusive. So the same logic would apply to any philosophy or scientific understanding you have. You're allowed to engage in those activities in accordance with your religious beliefs. And if you conclude that those beliefs are such that uh, they are guiding you in to not uh, consent to the uh, vaccine, you have got uh, a good basis for requesting a religious exemption. Uh, I know that in our society, there is this tendency to kind of divide religious activity from all of the, of the other activities, business and philosophy and science and daily activity. Uh, but they don't, they are not mutually exclusive. You need to simply understand that you're uh, entitled under law to engage in those activities in accordance with your religious beliefs. So I think many people are in position to uh, be able to obtain that. Uh, Warner was talking about a broader understanding of religion and that uh, that would permit you to say, seek a, a, a religious exemption if uh, you have non-theistic beliefs. It's not only for Christians, but uh, there is a court case that says uh, there are many non-theistic religions, they, Taoism and Buddhism and secular humanism. And secular humanism has tenets under humanist manifestos, uh, two of which which are pertinent regarding the importance of human autonomy and another, the right to consent to medical procedures. So uh, those two, those also would be a basis for a, a religious exemption. The Supreme Court has included them, secular humanism, as a form of religion. So that is a way that uh, one could obtain that exemption, uh, even if they are not uh, Christian or Muslim or Jewish. Uh, so that's what I would say about the exemptions. Uh, I would talk about the, uh, there is a, a statute in Ohio, and this is getting away from the exemptions that we should talk about, that, that is uh, that the COVID mandates are not permitted in the public schools, or they can't be imposed until or unless the COVID uh, vaccine is authorized. Uh, should be approved, yeah. I think it was, was the, the word in that one, right? And this is this is from HB2. Correct. The word is approved, and that yeah. has specific meaning in the statutes about, you know, when an approval would occur. 
So uh, basically, what that means for the public schools is, and uh, is that um, the only vaccine that could be mandated would be community, which uh, received um, approval, I guess in late August, August 26th. And there's some complexities about that that make it a bit confusing. That is that there were two different Pfizer uh, COVID uh, vaccines that were described. One is basically, you know, the COVID-19, Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine. And then another is the one called Comirnaty. And Comirnaty has, uh, is a, has, is not, has not yet been made available. So at present, it uh, is not permissible to yeah. mandate that let, vaccine. Let me jump in here a minute, though. I mean, we, we, we are advising people about that issue. Uh, House Bill 244 uh, become, comes into effect October 13th. You know, in talking to the students, uh, most of them, it seems like the colleges are trying to time it so that the mandate comes into effect in December and they have time then from, you know, October 13th or whatever to, uh, you know, get the two shots in and, and get past the 14 days from the last shot uh, in order to have that uh, vaccine, um, yeah, for, in order to have that mandate imposed. The problem with a student claiming an objection on that basis, and we're certainly willing to work with any student that wants to claim an objection on the basis that community is not available. As far as I know, uh, I, I don't, I, the last I checked, they hadn't even really started production for the United States market yet. And they're just doing a bait and switch uh, with the old Pfizer uh, vaccine. Um, but the pro obviously the problem with that is if you object that you don't have the approved FDA community available, then once it becomes available, you're going to be subject to the, that vaccine. So you're, it's, yeah, I, I think it's good that you brought that up in the exemption section here, but your religious exemption, your medical exemption would override that moving forward, whether or not community becomes available. So, I, I mean, it's certainly a good argument if somebody wants to make it. Um, if they're willing to be subject to community when it's available on the market. I would say that it, the, the two aren't mutually exclusive. Okay. You, can, you can request protection under the state statute as well as the religious okay. request That's an exemption. Point too. Yeah. So um, most people are going straight for the exemption because they want the certainty up front if they yeah. can get it. <laughs> and that's an interesting issue too. I mean, we have had, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up too, Tom, because we've had people request both medical and religious exemptions at the same time. And I, I mean, why not? If you have a, a religious exemption and you also have a medical condition and oh, by the way, community's not even on the market, I, I guess you can do that if you want to. So we're seeing all kinds of permutations of these exemptions or requests at this point. So uh, I, I have a question in there as well about the exemptions because there is a difference between um, an exemption and an accommodation as well. Because in the state of Ohio, kids 
have true exemptions where you can just simply say, you know, I have this medical or religious or even philosophical exemption. That means it, it's done. You just have to tell them I am taking this object, uh, exemption. I don't have to justify myself or anything and nothing is going to happen to your child. They can't treat your child differently because of it. But with adults, these aren't really exemptions they're, they are, as I, as I understand it, they're, they're really accommodations. They have, they, if they accept it, then they have to, or they have to make some accommodation for it. Um, are you guys seeing any of that kind of action happening with those that you are having success with getting these exemptions that they're, they have a whole laundry list of things that they have to comply with, or has it not been enough time for that kind of stuff to start settling out or? Well, I, well, the issue, the, the phrase accommodation is correct, and I'm using the term exemption loosely. It, you're right. Uh, the Constitution requires an accommodation for religious activity. Uh, but uh, there's a question if, if, if RIFRA applies, which there is no RIFRA in Ohio, so it would apply to federal employers. Explain uh, what RIFRA is. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what that is. Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, okay. which uh, passed in the 90s in response to the Constitution uh, no, uh, change where uh, the Smith case, where they changed the, the rules and basically the court, uh, the Congress said, no, we need, we, we like the old rule and uh, they put it back into place with RIFRA. However, uh, Ohio does not have a RIFRA and so it's really not um, going to be helpful here unless you're perhaps uh, a federal employee. Well, you're asking, have we seen what those accommodations are going to involve? And, yeah. I, you know, we are seeing some of that. I got to tell you that, um, you know, what I see in the institutions is uh, that this policy seems very hurried. It's not very well thought through. I, I question what the decision making was, how their boards or, you know, governing boards and executives, um, you know, how they processed all of this. I have a lot of questions about that right now. And then what, what we're seeing is that um, many of them don't even have proper forms in the first place. They don't have appeal rights set up. Uh, and then they do, you know, some of them have uh, told the employee what the accommodation will involve. And, you know, the one I, I read one tonight, I, I'm just racking my brain. I've read so many, I, 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 I'm not sure which uh, entity this one involved, but they were good. If you got the exemption, you had to get tested twice a week uh, to, to be negative. And it was your responsibility to be tested. So that meant you're paying for whatever that testing is costing and it's your responsibility. And in addition, it actually did dawn on me now that I'm talking about where I saw this. Um, I'm not going to name the entity because uh, it, it, it's a little bit sensitive. Um, but it's your, so tested twice a week, it's your responsibility. You have to pay for it. And anyone who's not is not vaccinated has to wear masks mm -hmm. uh, the entire time uh, that they're in the building. Um, so, I, I mean, to me, that just seemed, um, well, obviously over the top, punitive. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of words I could use there. Um, is so. that 
I'm sorry, I just have a question. Would that be an accommodation to an exemption or would that be a punishment to an exemption? Well, no, I, that's what I mean. I think it, it, to me it sounds more like a punishment, but no, that's the accommodation they're making. If you hmm. request the exemption, you're paying for your tests twice per week and you are going to be masked up the entire time you're in the building. So uh, that's, uh, that's, to me, that sounds very punitive. Um, and that's very much what I had been hearing. I mean, it was, it's probably been a couple months ago that, that I had an, uh, an epidemiology professor from my alma mater on here, and she talked about exactly this situation where, yes, you can, you can apply for the religious uh, exemption, but first of all, the form was extremely offensive. I mean, they had a question in there. Um, what if by declining immunization, you contributed to harm or contributed to harming others? This was in their formal document here, a, a questionnaire for a religious exemption. And they also had in there um, lots of different, um, they hadn't decided yet on their accommodations, but they talked about uh, if you do get it, you'll have to mask, you'll have to test, you'll have to you know, quarantine where maybe others do not have to quarantine. Uh, and this was at a time before everybody started masking again anyway. So it was, you're literally walking around with a mask on and nobody else was supposed to be. But of course that, that changed pretty quickly. So at least there wasn't this, you know, yellow star situation going on. But that's that's one of the other things where I think people who are looking for exemptions as being like the 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 thing they have to go for. And once they have that, they're they're protected, that they should at least know ahead of time um, that there's probably a secondary fight going on um, because some of these these accommodations are, are seriously punitive and, and they are nonsense. And I, have you guys worked in any of that corner, thought it through in terms of uh, the legality of that? Is there any way well, let's, to get yeah, it? Let me, let me speak to that. I mean, uh, the concept is you're not to discriminate against religious activity. So you have to be able to justify what measure is being used and you have to uh, not just target those who are engage, uh, doing engaged in a religious activity. So uh, that would mean, that I guess it depends on whether uh, you're saying th th this is focused on religious activity. For instance, if vaccinated people are now um, be, uh, getting COVID again, mm -hmm. you can't uh, say that only the unvaccinated have to go through these other measures you would probably have to start applying it to everyone that uh, might uh, be a risk so when they start uh, imposing what are essentially punitive measures to uh, basically discourage you from doing this you then have to say well if you're doing it solely because of the religious accommodation that's a form of religious discrimination that would be a problem but it, it depends on the fact pattern it depends on you know whether you can say there's other kinds of similar activity that should also be subject to that measure but you're not imposing that such as masking or testing uh, which logically probably should include the vaccinated now because they apparently are getting COVID now so yeah. then, so yeah. one of, oh, the, sorry. I'm sorry, the science of it, I mean, that, that 
you know, keeps coming out. I, I mean, to the extent that even the vaccinated have are actually shedding more of the virus than the unvaccinated. I mean, uh, you know, we've we've seen so many different reports. So it, there's there's no uh, you know there's no clear basis for these rules. And then, you know, and I do want to get to this one other issue. You know, and and when we're talking about these fact patterns, you know, if your listeners are out there and and are, are thinking about these fact patterns, I mean, these are fact patterns we're interested in in very specific ways. And and one of the fact patterns that I'm particularly interested in is someone who says, "I believe in my naturally acquired immunity," exactly. or or has a doctor who will write up a a, a medical exemption based on naturally acquired immunity. That's a great case to take, you know, and there's hundreds, there's, well, in Ohio, there's well over a million. You guys know the numbers, but I think it's over 1.3 million of us have had COVID. So, you know, some of those, we need to test that natural immunity stance. And one one thing to clarify here as well, there's probably a lot more than 1.3 million who have been infected, but because the numbers from the state of Ohio are so suspect, we cannot know with what we have uh, just from the data from the state, whether those 1.3 million that they say are immune are actually immune because we we take in uh, cases of people who who have never had the virus. I mean, the, the right thing to do, I would think, in terms of science and evidence and stuff would be to do either an antibody test or a T-cell test in order to do it that way. So that was actually kind of my question, though, that before was just in the way of, you know, you just talked about that they cannot discriminate you, discriminate against you because of a religious activity. And, and I wanted to ask, yeah, so if you're talking about natural immunity, is there any potential defense in the law? And you are saying yes, probably. Oh yeah, I mean, I, well, let's let's be clear. Uh, you know, we're we're looking we're looking at different fact patterns, and that's one of the fact patterns that would be an awful lot of fun to litigate, and it's something that needs to be presented to the court, and and we need to test that fact pattern against the law. Um, so that that so we are not legal people at all. Uh, there might be a couple lawyers in in the people watching and stuff. So when you're talking about fact patterns and what what is it that you need from people out in the general public who are experiencing these things? Because I mean, my understanding is is you need somebody who has been harmed, and then you guys can take it from there. And I'm sure in this group and in the sound of my voice, we can find people who are well, harmed. So what are you looking for? Who, yeah. who are you looking for? Yeah, I, well, I, I would say the first suit would be somebody who we could bring under this Ohio statute that now uh, precludes a mandate if you're in public school. Um, at this point, community is not available. So we would like to seek uh, declaratory relief uh, wherein the court will say it's the mandate is that you've made or by your let's say the employer is saying i require them you to get the vaccine it's overbroad you can't require it if it's anything other than community so we think that you could get a court to issue a declaration to that effect and so this would be for uh staff and teachers because obviously the, the children for the most part have not been. I don't know of any place that has for or no, but in in universities it's or university. public colleges. Right. Yeah, that was going to be my question. Right. So, right. No one does. To me, there's a question of 
you know, let's stop. It's a question of timing. There's a proposed statute in the Ohio legislature now that would be helpful. It hasn't been passed, but uh, things are evolving. So uh, this, this can be done in steps. We should be able to stop temporarily the mandate with respect to the public schools and the uh, universities and other state, well, not other state institutions, but educational institutions. Educational institutions. So we would like to do that if there's anyone that uh, is in position to make a claim of that. So yeah, that's that's exactly what, what, what I would love to know. And I'm sure all the viewers do too. What exactly would constitute your ideal kind of candidate for, for, for fighting that case? I guess a student or a teacher. Just any student or teacher who is being required to take this vaccine is, is sufficient to start. That's to right. Start. Right. It's pretty simple. Yep. Um, but then the question is, do they really, would they prefer to use the religious exemption? We think that'll, they, they could succeed perhaps in that and they may want not want to challenge the state statute. I have a question, only because I, I know that there are several students that are in the same position. So the college, if the college isn't necessarily um, mandating the vaccine, however, these are clinical students. They're on their way out to clinicals and the clinical site is mandating. You cannot come here to complete your clinicals. Therefore, you cannot graduate with your degree because you don't have your, your clinicals, um, what would that? Boy, that's a, a, a complication I haven't thought through. Yep. Uh, so the facility, obviously, because you are not an employee, they don't offer the exemptions because you are not employed. You're just a clinical student. But the I, would, I would think this, that the state university is utilizing that facility and should uh, require that facility not to violate the state statute applicable to the state university. I think that's right. I, I think that I think that that can expand to cover those clinical uh, experiences. Again, you, you know, we're, these are test cases we're looking for. Mm -hmm. These are test cases that we'll be doing. So we don't have guidance from other cases. We can't, you know, copy and paste from some other right. case out there. But so, those are the best ones. To yeah. be able to set that standard and set that precedent. Yeah. But um, you're willing to do it, which many, many are not. I, I hate to interrupt here right now, but I mean, I'm just listening to you all as well. And there's been comments there as well. Uh, if you want to get in contact with these lawyers because you fit one of these descriptions, do you guys have uh, uh, contact information? I can have that down at the bottom of the screen here. So if somebody does say, hey, that fits me, they know how to contact you. I just send them to the website. It's it's warnermendenhall.com and they can email or, or call from that website. That's probably the easiest. And they'll see a little bit of our history. We are going to put up a specifically COVID page here. I've been so busy, I haven't had a chance to do it though. Um, <laughs> so I've been meaning to put up some pleadings and briefs and, and, and some information about some of the other cases we see going on around the country. Um, uh, you know, and I, I'm also trying to, you know, link up with other lawyers. I can tell you there there is an overwhelming demand right now. And, and I, you know, we're doing the best we can to help people out. But but it is uh, 
we're getting called every single day by several people every single day. And that includes the weekend and that includes today. Yeah, I'm not sure if you can see those comments, but some of them are actually kind of shocking. Uh, the, how can a company accept a certain amount of exemptions? My former employer chose which religious exemptions to accept. Heard that one. Yep. Um, they they and, don't have any role in making that decision. So okay. that, that person and those employees, uh, I mean, that again, that's a good uh, a good test case. We actually think that issue is pretty clear, though, pretty well litigated in other ways, in analogous ways in other cases uh, long before now. So that's a pretty clear issue. They can't pick and choose. You know, they can't discriminate against a Buddhist or a Taoist or, a, okay. you know, or whatever. Um, so we think that's pretty clear. Okay. What about a Catholic who, of course, the Pope is saying that it's it's okay, and and, and that kind of situation has that one gone through yet? Or uh, well, the Catholics are also saying that uh, people have a right of conscience, so that uh, and and the, the Pope only said because he thought there was no other alternative, uh, but that doesn't mean that, that uh, people don't have a right of conscience. So no, that doesn't preclude the Catholics. I guess I struggle with that. No other alternative. Well, that's a question for uh, Pope Francis. I don't uh, quite agree with his uh, judgment. Okay. Yeah, because that uh, um, there was one just to kind of lighten it up. That that. Um, yeah, we're, we're, I'm sorry. Yeah, we're not seeing the comments. I'm. We're yeah. just, we're just on the right hand side at the very top. There's like a little speech bubble there, and if you click yep. on, then you'll see the. It comment. says you're probably it defaults to the private if you click over to where it just says comments you'll see a bunch but there's one that i just loved and it said oh wow dr mendenhall was my college professor years ago <laughs> you know, no. No, it wasn't, I, I don't think it was me though i did i did teach for a little bit i taught uh i taught some spanish at kent state for a little bit but my my dad was uh, had a career as a college professor so they're probably talking about my dad. Okay. Um, <laughs> they get to see me at college teaching a class. I did a little bit of that, but my dad was the uh, true professor. And then we also have another one that says, um, what about public library? Does that fall into any of those exemptions? I mean, under HB 244. Yeah. No, not under the state statute, but the religious okay. exemption would still be available. Okay, and then we have another one. They had an antibody test. They were positive with 34.1. Um, and the, her employer is saying she can't use that because she never tested positive to COVID, even though CDC does say asymptomatic classes can't have antibody. Hmm. Well, what's the context? Is she looking for a, a medical exemption? Yeah, but it sounds like she she has the she she has a, a medical indication that she had the disease or had had exposure. To Correct. Kill. So yeah, so she had that, an antibody test. Yes, that that should work. Okay. Well, no, for the medical exemption, normally or I think ideally, you should go to your doctor who will. Uh, if, and, and there are doctors that uh, that will provide exemptions. But they can look at uh, and talk to that person about their medical history and make a uh, judgment call as to whether they believe it's inappropriate medically for them to have the vaccine. But I think she was thinking more of the natural 
um, immunity case that you guys were speaking on before. Um, 34.1 is a, a really impressive in. antibody. That should play in because if you have okay. natural immunity, why would you be taking the risks of the vaccine? In fact, the vaccines may interfere with that natural immunity yes. and therefore not be advisable. And then we have another one. Um, hospitals are saying, though, that there cannot be a religious exemption because the person would be a health danger to others. That, that's just not correct. Okay. There, so right. when we, when people are having those, when they're being told these things, they should know that these things are not correct. That it, that is a a basis for for contacting lawyers such as yourself to say, this is this is not legal. This you guys you guys would be able to have this as a case, and we we need a lot more lawyers willing to do it, and we need those test cases to to break the ground and make it easier to fight these cases. Is that correct? Right. So all of you that are in the, the comments, especially I see a lot of city of Dayton ones. Holy cow. The city yeah. of Dayton says if you have the antibody, you do not have to be tested weekly or get vaccinated. Great. That means that they have some common sense going. I believe they're on. the only place in Ohio right, right. now. That but they also have an ordinance that if you don't have a mask on, it's $85. And that city of Dayton employees, yeah, that they're having their, because um, it's an ordinance, I guess they can make their police enforce it because it's an ordinance, not a mandate, is the way that they had said. But there are several on there. Um, so if anybody has put comments on, you know, and you're questioning that, if we don't get them all covered here, it looks like there is a website that she has scrolling that would be enough to I, give I you motion to, to make it stop. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Either we lose all of our names or it's <laughs> Maybe there's another way, but I'm not as familiar with StreamYard and these particular functions. I will put this in the in the comments as well, but um, there was that question I had here uh, that that was here as well about the medical exemptions. Are they allowed to to say no to those? And I mean, yeah, I'm yeah. wondering that as well. They are allowed to say no to that. Yes, they are allowed to say no. Mm -hmm. It depends on the the policy. Some policies are saying a medical exemption is permissible. So once you have that policy, then I I think you have to live by that policy. Um, and, but I, I, I suppose it's possible not to have that policy. The thing is, if you do have a policy, I think you've got a claim at that point. Okay. So if you, if, if the, if the, um, business in question has medical exemptions as a possibility, and then your medical exemption is denied, then you might have uh, a case. But if your business doesn't allow medical exemptions at all, then you, you don't have a chance. Unfortunately, no. We need okay. a state statute that the state could protect here, and they have not yet done so. We, we need that. And uh, this is, at, at a minimum, they should be discussing appropriate exemptions if they don't want to um, uh, forbid the mandate, which in my view, they should, but at the least they should do this. We don't have a statute that protects us in Ohio. And, and you know, this is a good time for me to talk about this. I think I did in the beginning a little bit, but <clears throat> you know, we're, I, I, all of these types of battles that, that are, you know, uh, societal battles. I mean, we're, we're one part of it and I don't want people to think, Oh, just the law is going to do it. The lawyers are going to save us because, I mean, honestly, I, I wish we could, but that's not the case. I mean, we need we need what you're doing with the media. Um, we need the political organization. And right now we've got a statute at the state legislature 
those state legislators need to hear from people uh, because the, apparently the business groups, uh, the Chamber of Commerce is objecting to that state statute, which I really uh, don't get because they're getting victimized by it in a different way as well. But I mean, it's a three-pronged strategy, it's not one. I mean, we're gonna have some legal uh, wins and we're gonna have some legal losses, but don't let the legal issues become a black hole where everybody sinks their time and resource into that. It's critical, it's very important, but it works three ways. We've gotta have the political might out there. Uh, you know, frankly, judges have gotta know that there's controversy on the streets and that their opinion is really gonna to matter to people. And our state legislatures who are working on legislation, they need to know that there's gonna be some consequences if they don't get that legislation through to protect people's rights. And the media, unfortunately, I mean, there are some media, I will tell you this, I've had uh, some mainstream media actually contact me about some of these issues. So there is some willingness to do it. Um, I. Uh, I don't want to name the reporter right now. I mean, for this kind of to protect, which is concerning in and of itself that we're we're in this position where people who are you know willing to to go and ask talk to the other side, we have to be hush hush about. It. I mean, that's that's concerning. Well, I don't look. You, you know, you're you're doing everything, uh, Catherine. I, I know to get the word out, and you've you've been through a number of different. Uh, you you've tried to do it in a number of different ways, and. As you know, there's that odd logo in our picture there. That's because we we uh, are sitting right now in the Radio Free Network offices, um, which is also trying to get you know information out and set up a channel that's not controlled by the major corporations. So these channels are growing. I mean, I think on the you know we're talking about very bad things that are happening to people all over the place. The very good things that are happening is that people are organizing, people are connecting, people are finding, I mean, it's literally an antibody response to the virus of the media and the fear that's that's infected our world. So the antibody response are those of us who are not fearful, who are figuring out a channel to get around all the blockades that are out there. And, uh, you know, it is causing a lot of very important connections to occur. And those connections, you know, ultimately are political power. Uh, I mean, right now they're probably fairly incipient. Uh, people are learning who they can trust, uh, learning how well, they, you well, know, but that's, that's what I see a lot of positive in terms of how people are organizing, but I don't, you know, I do want to emphasize it's a multi-pronged strategy, just like you have to hit COVID with multiple drugs and, and things, we've got to hit this problem of fear uh, with with a multi-pronged strategy the same way. Go ahead, Tom, well, sorry. One thing you can do is call your legislator. They've got aides who will take down your uh, information and uh, they will relay it. And if enough people do that, they're gonna become aware of this. Uh, call the speaker. I called the Ohio speaker for some reason there was a statute that would have protected us and it, it got delayed. And I called the sponsor and she said the best thing you can do is call the speaker because apparently he's the one who's most influential on, on this. So do that. And the legislative aides will be polite and you can let them know your thoughts. There's many people who are interested in this. Let your legislators know about it. Yeah, we unfortunately this particular group we we've definitely been doing a lot of the the going to the legislators. Uh, many of us know many of them on a first name basis at this point, and it's just 
it's been it's been beyond frustrating. Uh, most of us probably never called a legislator or wrote a legislator before in our lives, and now we we know a lot of them. And I, I'm including a, a large number of people in the comments. And it's it's been that's been one of the things that's been most frustrating, I think, to people is just this: the legislators just we don't know what gets them over the hump. Uh, you know, we we've got thousands of calls going in, and and the whole business of what happened with HB 248, where there have there were I think like 1,600 proponent testimonies submitted for it, and yet here it, and in more far more than anything other any other legislation that has ever been seen ever in the state of Ohio, and yet it continues to sit. So it, it, well, I hear your frustration, <laughs> but we we just need to keep trying. Just yeah. remember, people, uh, it's not they're polite. They'll listen to you. Call them up. Don't don't be shy. Well, I, I might tend to say go a little further. Too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, at, at this point, uh, you know what? Look, our civil rights are under attack. Um, they're being stripped from us. You know, we need to remember how we gained those civil rights in the first place. It wasn't easy. People were hosed. They were attacked by dogs. Uh, you know, whatever, you know, in the Vietnam War, the protests with that, we had students shot at Kent State. Um, you know, we, we, people are at some point, you know, probably going to have to put their bodies on the line. And there's, you know, it can start out with initially, uh, I do think people uh, need to protest. Um, and, uh, you know, pick, pick the legislators who are resistant, pick the corporate leaders who are, are pushing these mandates and protest outside of their house on their street, march by their house, let them know we know where they live and we don't like what they're doing and take it to the streets. I, I mean, that's, you know, civil disobedience. You know, I, I was, I've actually represented a lot of people doing civil disobedience. The last time. I had 30 clients uh, from an Iraq war protest uh, back in uh, the early 2000s. And they were all Kent State students who didn't want us to go to war. But guess who ended up being right in my book? Uh, I think those students were right. They all got charged. You know, we represented about 30 of them. Um, but, you know, they actually put their bodies on the line, blocked streets in, in Kent, the city of Kent and got arrested. And Martin Luther King got arrested, and the and the Vietnam War protesters got arrested, and uh, you know, I mean, that is where traditionally uh, lawyers are 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 you know there are certainly lawyers who are willing to stand up and do that. It used to be the ACLU, but uh, they've sort of gone off the rails. Um, do they even exist anymore? I mean, I haven't heard anything. From yeah, them. where, where are they? They're proponents they, they, of the vaccine yeah, mandate. They, yeah. I mean, if you want to hear about the ACLU and what they did, in 20, do you want to hear that? <laughs> in, in, 2016, they, in 2016, they actually came out with a whole paper as to what these, you know, what you should and should not do in a pandemic. And then uh, just in the last, uh, you know, few months, they completely reversed course and have talked about how vaccines protect your civil rights and that the vaccine mandates actually protect your civil rights. It's an absurdity. The organization has become an absurdity. It's I don't even know how those two things can equate, but that's, I'm sure, another conversation for uh, another time. But um, I don't put vaccines and 
civil rights in the same sentence and ever think anything positive is going to come from, from that. But, you know, again, I, I don't know. Well, here's, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I'm, I've been very interested in what is happening and, you know, in terms of attorneys organizing. And I can't say I have any bit of comprehensive view of it. But, you know, you know, there are groups that have uh, formed, um, you know, COVID frontline doctors is, is, is organized with some attorneys to fight some of these mandates. Um, the new Civil Liberties Alliance, uh, which people can uh, Google, uh, is fighting this. The Institute for Justice, Pacific Legal Foundation, you know, and most of those are, are probably on the conservative spectrum. Uh, the ACLU used to to not look at politics and would represent Nazis if they had to to defend our rights. Um, but but the ACLU has lost its lost its uh, way here at this point. But there are other groups coming up of lawyers that that are taking this seriously and stepping in. Uh, I'd like to talk about the EUAs a little bit. <laughs> All right. uh, this is a little more general, but I think it's important. Uh, the way that these vaccines came to us is through this emergency use authorization. And that statute is something that is only triggered under limited circumstances. They, uh, they came about because of something called the BioShield Act in 2005 and the PrEP Act in 2005. And they were designed to permit United States be ready with countermeasures if there was a bioterrorist attack. Yeah, there was yes. a bioterrorist attack. Mm -hmm. Right. And so one of the requirements is a declaration that there, in fact, was a biological, nuclear, right. chemical attack. Uh, however, uh, when you look at the authorization, they simply said there was a uh, an emergency because of coronavirus. And they didn't make that. So I, I don't believe they have fulfilled that condition uh, because bear in mind, this is an emergency uh, statute. And it's similar to other um, emergency statutes that have been abused throughout the country. For instance, uh, our governor was using a very general emergency statute that put no limits on him. And eventually the legislature had to come in and say, no, wait, there are limits to this. Um, so what's happening is that under the, the, the concept of emergency, they're, they've developed these vaccines. And uh, the statute was uh, pretty limiting in uh, permitting this. It, it did, uh, said that there's a right for a person to turn down these emergency, the vaccines that are developed under emergency use authorization. They, there's a right to know about the risks and benefits and I, they're only providing fact sheets, which, which give nominal information. Uh, there is, uh, so there are, are, are limitations on this uh, emergency authority that we should be thinking about. Uh, those two letters that came out in August are very curious. Uh, one said that community uh, is now fully approved. And under, the, uh, under this statute, that should mean that they um, are no longer under the liability protections. That statute, as you can imagine, uh, gives very strong protections from liability 
to the uh, developers of the vaccine, but it's only justified in that limited circumstance. And what they're trying to do with these letters very generally is, I think, maintain that very strong liability protection. So what they've done is they have said community is a, uh, approved, but community has not yet been made available. However, Pfizer's other COVID-19 vaccine, which is just the same, is still under the emergency youth authorization. So it's got this very strong liability protection. Um, that should be pushed. Are they really going to come out now and start uh, making community available or not? And I don't know the answer to that. Uh, oddly enough, uh, there was a statement from the government. Somebody did ask, uh, is community going to be pr protected under this very strict liability protection statute? They said, yes, it would be. But I, I don't see how that is true under the statute, just looking at the statute. You know, emergency authorization ends when you get a full approval. But it's not fully approved. The biological license is fully approved. So that's well, where there's some, the only thing that's approved beyond the, uh, the biologic license is for them to market the, giving them a NDC number and then market as a vaccine, but there's not enough data to give them a full approval as a vaccine. That's why it's only, the only full approval is the biological license. Well, that is interesting to me because I'm reading it and it, it looks like it's permitted to market it, to bring it yeah. to market. Right. Per permitted so, to bring it to market with a label, meaning that it can be sold and crossed. Hang on a second, Carrie. You're saying that you don't believe it's categorized as a vaccine. It, it's not yet. You can. Right. It's not 2024. So it, wouldn't, it wouldn't fall under the vaccine injury uh, statute. Right. Or anything else at that point. Right. So that's a, look. That's an interesting point. I don't know that. Um, but if you can bring it to market, maybe I'm not sure understanding your point. She she's saying that they have proved it as a biologic mm -hmm. treatment. Right but not as a vaccine. But, so it's right. for use, but it wouldn't fall under the vaccine protections because well, okay. it's not officially a vaccine yet. Well, that's very Is that correct, Carrie? Did I get that, that? that? That's correct. So it's in the same category as Embril and Humira and all of those things that are also bi biologics. They are well, not if, vaccines either. If that's true, then they would have no liability protection. Right. And right. I doubt that they're going to do that. But they have to first get rid of the Pfizer right. nineteen vaccine oh. because they have that in stock. So they've approved community as a biologic. It loses its protection, but they're and going a biologic. It doesn't lose biologic. its protection if you're using it as a vaccine. Yes. Well, obviously, we're we're working through a lot of issues on our side, and I, I you know, I appreciate your distinction. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you you would. Be a great lawyer if you had law school yet <laughs> but <laughs> it's the, but, i mean really what we are talking about are distinctions you've got to make these distinctions and i think that's an important observation and we're going to definitely follow up on that issue of the difference between a biologic and a vaccine i i recommend um we have a youtube channel on august 29th 
uh, Carrie and I had exactly this discussion because she had been telling me of these 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 little uh, order of the words kind of details that make the difference between these because I was also struggling just as you because she had explained previously the process involved with becoming a vaccine that is approved. And when they approved it, I was looking at the language they were using and I was totally confused. So Carrie helped, you know, walk me through the documents themselves, the letters themselves. And I, I'm, I asked the exact same questions you guys are where I'm, I'm just totally lost. And so that we have on video, uh, either on our Facebook page or it hasn't been taken down from the YouTube page yet, but that one is, uh, we, we we really did discuss exactly this issue of what makes the difference. Well, here's the letter. I've got it in front of me, and it uses this language. The license authorizes you to introduce or deliver for introduction into interstate commerce. Right. There so you said it. So now they can uh, put this into commerce. Now, what you're telling me that it's uh, okay. I understand that there's a, a distinction between biological product in your mind and vaccine, although I don't know that uh, vaccine does not come within the meaning of biological product, but I will tell you that I would, if they don't come within the definition of vaccine, it does. It does? Yeah, so, vaccine under a biologic, but right. not all biologics are vaccines. Correct. So all vaccines are, are biologic, so they have to have that licensure, but into to obtain full approval, you have to have licensure plus data. So it's two separate applications. Typically, they're filed at the same time. This, of course, there's nothing typical about any of this. Um, so once that data is then constructed in 2024, the, at that time, it can then, and if you look at the bottom of that, that letter, there's a whole timetable of things that have to occur. Um, it's on one of the last pages. Um, and you also at the very bottom, it says for there is a legal distinction between the two Pfizer, but they can be used interchangeably because that makes it a biosimilar. So a biosimilar is a biologic that is similar to the actual um, yeah. product. I'm so, familiar with the concept that they can use them interchangeably, but that tends to go against your claim that this is not a vaccine because it, it can be used interchangeably with a vaccine. So there's, there's no vaccine? approved vaccine. There is no approved vaccine at this time. There is a licensed biologic approval. That can be marketed. That can be marketed. So they're able it's to market this. As Correct. a vaccine, but it is not a vaccine until the testing is through. Ah, all right. Well, I'm going to look into that. That's just I will say this, it doesn't strike me that they would want to do that because then they don't have the protection under the- But they do because they authorize it. They, they didn't approve it, they authorize it. So at this time, you would not be able to take that vaccine to vaccine court because it's, it's not. All right, but if you don't go to vaccine court, don't you have the right to go elsewhere, which would be into our judicial system? No, because you, you used it off. Well, I don't know about that. I'm not an, an attorney, but no, you, you used it off label. As a biologic. You, you No, you used the, the biologic off label as a vaccine. Okay. But that would open you up to going into a more regular uh, court process instead of a vaccine injury court. Anyway, that's a great point. 
I, I, we don't, we're not going to have an answer for you today. I appreciate what you've raised in, in terms of this distinction. I think we're going to, this is what happens with lawyers. I mean, we don't know everything, by the way, folks. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're taking in ideas and trying to figure out uh, what we can do with them. So we're going we're gonna to look at it. We've got the letters right in front of us. We're both reading them as we're talking to you. And I do see the one says vaccine. The other one says about biologic They're on the same day. And, and one at the top should have... Um, Biologics license application. No, I see it. Yep. Correct. And, and then it should also say BioNTech Bio, and Pfizer. And then the, the other one should not. It right. should say, yeah, correct. So that's no, how you, you can tell. We see it. No, I like the distinction. We'll, we'll take a look at that. Because that, you know, I mean, all of this, uh, you know, we don't know what a court will do with that. But I but it's worth looking at and it's worth making the distinction and it's worth making the argument at this point. So, well, I'm sure Pfizer understands this in great detail because well, there is what, they made 33 billion yeah. gross on this uh, vaccine, uh, COVID vaccine. They've got a bunch of money into this. They've got it lawyered to the end of the world, I'm sure. And I will be honest, and I've said it on here many times, we, we go through hours and hours of class called defensive medicine that um, teaches us exactly how to put those, those words in order to absolve yourself from as much li liability as possible. Okay. The medical industry and lawyers are not too dissimilar at this point in time. <laughs> It's the medical not, industry is a is a great industry for lawyers, it is. and a lot of them very rich. Um, so not the workers, we're not at all. <laughs> if you only knew what I did to supplement income, <laughs> you don't want to. Know. Well, this is a question for all the people who are be injured, being injured by the vaccines, which could be very significant. It's mm -hmm. it's an open question now, and we're all learning about it as we go. Makes you wonder why they make it so fast that you have to get it. You yeah. can't pay out everyone. Right. If everyone needs it, then nobody pays it. I, I mean, and you have to look at you know what the the definition of vaccine, um, an adverse reaction for this particular one is. It's it has to occur within fourteen days of the the second one, or actually, I'm sorry, for either one. If it's outside of that 14 days, and I was, you know, I had a cousin that um, passed away and it was directly from this vaccine um, in a, a different state. And it is on every piece of documentation that we, we have. Um, and it was within 14 days. Had, it, had he passed away, even though his illness started within 12 hours of taking it and he was on or in ICU within 14 hours if he would have expired on the 15th day as opposed to the seventh day, it would no longer be a vaccine injury or a vaccine ad adverse reaction caused by Pfizer um, product. So, and which is very distinct for this one. And you're saying there's uh, something in the statute that limits liability under those circumstances. Yeah, well, they only count it. They only right. count it as being a vaccine. Reaction. Well, 
or an adverse reaction. An adverse reaction because it's not a vaccine anyway, right. but an adverse reaction or a death within a certain window that actually includes a chunk of time between two weeks after the first shot and two weeks after the second, because you have at least three weeks between your doses. So there's literally a week within those that whole vaccine process that that if it happens, then you don't count. Right. It, it doesn't. So it I'm like, right. It, mm -mm. There's something else. Not yeah, fully vaccinated. Yeah. yeah. What I'm getting is that there's there must be statutory limits that are uh, there is putting up those kinds of limitations because normally you aren't going to be limited to a 14 day window. Correct. So. And if, but if you look at their definition and nor normally if somebody expires and it's considered um, or there's a question regarding, was it an involvement of a medication, a treatment or a vaccine? We also don't do post-mortem um, gene testing or any type of genetic testing post-mortem but we do for, for the COVID vaccines. So if you had a, if, if you had a clotting disorder that you didn't know existed, a gene mutation, you've never had issues with it, never been diagnosed with it, never treated with by it. And we do the genetic testing and it comes back, oh, you have, you know, factor eight or um, what they call factor five leading then, then that vaccine or that treatment did not cause your death. Your underlying, undiagnosed, never had an issue with gene mutation caused that death. And to uh, one other thing, probably not too well understood um, here, but as well, when you have gene mutations, that doesn't mean that you have that expression. So as, as Carrie was just saying there, if you have these factors, you can go through life uh, or other autoimmune conditions, you can go through life and you can never have the disease. You need to have both the genetic predisposition towards the disease, and then you must have an environmental trigger to make it be activated. And so if you happen to have a genetic condition that has not yet been activated, but when you get the vaccine, it gets activated, because they're doing post-mortem genetic testing and say, oh, they do have this factor, they are going to say it's not because of the vaccine, even though truly if it's the vaccine that triggered the expression of the disease, normal people would say that means that the vaccine caused the death because without the vaccine, you wouldn't right. have that environmental trigger. Right. That's what I'm getting at. Under normal circumstances, causation would be a finding of fact by a, a jury uh, unless there's a statutory limitation on when a claim could be brought. And I'm, I assume that's what you're talking about. I don't know. I don't know about a claim. You just got, you know, I mean, I don't understand how you, um, I think the, the thought process of it is if there's no, you know, in healthcare, if it, if it wasn't documented, it, it wasn't done. So if there's no documentation that this death was attributed to this treatment because we were able to rule it as something else, then how would you even begin to argue? And I mean, that's your guys's job, I guess, but well, it would be very difficult to argue. Experts that would opine as to whether they thought it was a causation and that's how the, it would proceed. So it wouldn't be impossible uh, to 
get evidence of causation. You just have to find an expert who could help you there. And experts are absolutely under fire right now. So that, that, that yeah. adds in some difficulty levels, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and we've talked about that a little, Catherine. Um, you know, the doctors, you know, we do have doctors who are helping people throughout the state, but many of them are very fearful to speak out about the treatments that are actually working on their patients. Um, and, uh, you know, because they feel like they won't be able to continue uh, the treatment uh, that has been successful so far. But but unfortunately, that's driven this whole, it's almost a medical underground at this point. And, and we're certainly, you know, steering people to doctors that we know um, uh, that are willing to give people life-saving treatment here. Um, a couple of stories, though, that have come out recently, I'm sure your audience can share this. I mean, we've recently had a number of people go to the hospital, get sent home, and then end up back in the hospital. And when they got sent home the first time, they were giving no, given no treatment, no guidance, no nothing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's resulted in some very terrible situations. I mean, one guy that I know who we did get connected with the doctor, uh, after he connect, got connected with that particular doctor, within 24 hours, he said he was feeling great. And he was back to his happy, healthy self. Another woman that we were dealing with recently, she went into the hospital, um, went home, got sicker, went back to the hospital, and then, um, you know, was delirious and was under uh, soft restraints. And uh, I, I think she's going to make it, but she had some clotting. Uh, they suspect she may have had a stroke. Um, you know, so there's some terrible, it's just terrible how, our, uh, how people are being treated in this process. And the doctors who are actually trying to prescribe something early uh, to provide treatment uh, are very fearful that they're not going to be able to treat the patients that they want to treat. Um, but it's also really made it hard to get the information out to people that there's a lot that can be done. So I mean, we both, I mean, you know, unfortunately, we know people who've died. Uh, we, know, we know one guy who's uh, apparently one of his lungs is completely damaged. Um, and his, his capacity is way down, and uh, it's just been a mix. Yeah, I, I had a deaths. friend who died the other day from COVID, and she was sent home after she was diagnosed without any treatment at all. They just sent her home. And I, I was flabbergasted. Um, so I you know, did call to say there are forms of treatment, there are things that can be done. But well, how is it that a hospital at this point could be doing that? Now, apparently the NIH has now come out and said that uh, vitamin D, vitamin C, and zinc are um, helpful. helpful. And so, which is two days ago, but, you know, we people have been talking about that for over a year and a half. Um, but the notion that they're talking about zinc being useful begs the question of how does the zinc now get into the cell where it will inhibit the RNA replication, which gets you into the hydroxychloroquine, the quercetin, the ivermectin. But NIH now is apparently recognizing that as of two days ago. 
and we, we're also we've got some folks that we know and and, I, and understand I've, I've literally through my career represented thousands of people um so we have a lot of contact in the community and i mean unfortunately i had a elderly gentleman you know gets a vaccine and has a cerebral hemorrhage for four weeks later i have a young uh pharmacist who ended up with bell's palsy um you know and the bell's palsy has happened to several people that so, you know, we're getting some feedback just because we're, you know, we have so many people that we do know in the community that are, you know, coming to us with concerns or we're hearing about what happened to them or we're sending flowers to their people. So, uh, you know, that th those things all just, you know, they, they really, they, they do have us on edge. You know, we're, we're very concerned about what's happening and I think some of that's driving our willingness as a small firm. We have five attorneys here um you know to do something about it i can tell you all five of the attorneys are very committed to it we have a, a number of young attorneys who are very committed to this so. that's awesome there's a, i don't know Catherine. did you see that comment i would love to which uh, one okay it's, it's from jim he said i am late so forgive me if this was already asked what happened to trump's right to try bill why can't people have ivermectin or hcq um I don't know from a legal standpoint. I can only say from my standpoint, and I'm just, I'd love to hear what they have to say about it, but right to try from 2018, um, first of all, you have to have the, the manufacturer be willing to participate and, and right to, to try. Um, and so not all drug companies do that. And these, these medications are approved, the HCQ and the ivermectin. Both right. of them, we don't need the right to try. Right. Law. they wouldn't fall under right you you can have it prescribed now it's just mm -hmm. very hard well i'm going to tell you something else that was concerning because we, we are in touch with some doctors around the state and one of the things that we've seen is not only are the pharmacies being very unwilling to write the prescription and i'll, I'll, I'll you know particularly the larger company pharmacies you know your your walgreens your cvs the ones that have more top-down corporate control uh, so the pharmacies that are willing to prescribe are generally going to be your locals, your independents, maybe even your compounding pharmacies. But we have heard from now some of those pharmacies aren't getting the drugs that they have ordered. That's, so, yeah, that we, actually we have a personal experience that just um, this past week. We have a friend, a family friend that was diagnosed early on. Doctor said, yep, we're going to go ahead and treat you. And it's, you know, a doctor that mainstream you know not an under i hate to say underground but i don't know another word for it uh, but he called in you know an antibiotic and antiviral hcq and um ivermectin all four got called in as well you know and then then said you know d c and zinc and the diagnosis that was put on it was COVID 19. Mm -hmm. well i had the, the same day, my daughter had a prescription for ivermectin, um, not for COVID, for histoplasmosis. They go, we go to the same pharmacy at noon. The COVID-19 person said they don't know when they're going to have it in. They're totally out. At 2 p.m., my daughter, I got the text that my daughter's was ready. So I said, hey, maybe they got a shipment in. And she said, nope, I haven't gotten anything. So I said, well, we have, H, you know, I 
my daughter failed on HCQ from a different di diagnosis. Um, but I wonder if I can get it re re refilled just to see. I still had refills left on it. Within 20 minutes, it was filled. Mm -hmm. So it's that diagnosis that, at least for us, for that one instance, maybe it's, you know, totally coincidence. It was a one-time fluke thing. I don't know. But I had no issues for the diagnosis, a totally separate diagnosis, getting both meds. Her with COVID-19 could not get their meds filled. Be and the reason given was it's back ordered and we don't know when we will get it in. Well, there, there's some larger trends that are going to make these issues important in the future, I'm thinking, because if the vaccines are not effective, or at least are time limited, they last for four months, six months. <coughs> um, and people are, are reluctant and it's uncertain whether a third jab is a good idea, just like the FDA panel said 16 to two, two days ago. Uh, what is the alternative then? If you're looking at like Israel, which is one of the most heavily vaccinated in the world, and apparently Singapore, Britain is a little behind it. They were ahead of the uh, curve in getting vaccinated. And yet they are now experiencing spikes so apparently the vaccination wears out. It does something. Something yeah. is something is funky. That's, that's so, been acknowledged. You know, so now what's going to happen if, if, the, if, if we have to have four, five, six, seven uh, jabs, and we're not sure that that's healthy because perhaps there's a, you know, a buildup of toxins that uh, come from the vaccines, then what? We're going to have to look at treatments. I, I want to cycle back uh, about the doctors having trouble with the pharmacists, okay? And and I just, you know, we that's another good test case. You know, if a doctor is having a problem with the pharmacy and having problems getting it, and like you said, if they actually have it in place and weren't, you know, if they had the, the drug there at the pharmacy and didn't issue it on the doctor's orders, those are those, those raise some interesting questions too. So talk about a test case there might be something there too. So that's, you know, these fact patterns, like we said earlier, that those are things we're looking for to get, you know, to really focus on where the system's broken. You know, that's a big place where a pharmacist is interfering with a doctor's prescription and a doctor's opinion about what's needed to treat the patient. I mean, to me, that just seems so offensive. But so Ohio gave them that ability though. The doctors have got to, well, and again, the doctors need to stand up. They, they, you know, we're looking doctors, patients who are not getting things filled. And then, you know, Ohio law can be changed. Um, and, and let's, let's go back to that for a minute. We all exist under city charters, state constitutions and U.S. constitutions. And at least under our city charters, if we're in a charter city or charter county, we can change our local law. We can do it through uh, petitioning and signatures and get proposals on the ballot. And the same thing with the Ohio Constitution. I mean, we could do a constitutional amendment if we had enough people aware and willing to do the work to do it. You know, that would change the change how this whole thing functions and change the distribution of power. So that has happened in the past. It can happen again. 
but we need to, like you've done with all of your research, Carrie, in terms of reading the language very carefully, you know, we all need to understand what our powers are as citizens under our charters, under our constitutions, and what actions we can take to actually make law. Uh, we, we don't have to just be subject to a law passed by a legislature that at this point seems reluctant to pass it. You know, we can actually make a constitutional amendment and pass laws uh, for our own state uh, through the uh, petitioning process. And, and just by the way, I mean, we've advised through the years uh, many, many initiative petition drives in terms of writing the language, what the requirements are in terms of gathering signatures, and defending those petition drives ultimately in court to make sure that they get on the ballot and get voted on. So that, that's another area that kind of jibes with what we call our government accountability uh, work that we do in practice. So if we don't like what our legislatures are doing, do we have to wait until it's time for them to be reelected to make them go away? There's not like a recall or, I mean, if I had an employee that wasn't doing what I needed to have done, I would change the locks, take their key and tell them to have a good day. We can't do that, huh? Not at the state level. Yeah, there is at, at county and in city levels, there may be re, your charters may have recall provisions. So if a county or if a local leader's done it, look to, to your local rules, look to your city charter or your county charter and see if you have a possibility of recall. And you could do that. And the, and the other thing that I think is more important, I mean, recall is sort of a negative move. There's a positive move. You can you could do an initiative petition. You could do a charter amendment and we could do a constitutional amendment. And that organizes us in a positive direction. If we succeed in that effort, there is a permanent change to the politics in Ohio, to the laws of the state of Ohio. So, you know, I, I like to keep people focused on positive things. Recalls rarely succeed historically. I've run one, so I know. Um, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the ability to actually write law and as citizens and get it into the constitution or into our charters, that's an incredibly strong power. What uh, constitutional amendment do you think would help here? Well, we could do a constitutional amendment on health authority and how health authority is, uh, is uh, expressed and, and uh, implemented. And uh, we would have to sit down with a group of citizens and go through a process to develop language uh, that that people think would be appropriate. Yeah, you know, I mean, the other thing, uh, you know, Carrie, you're talking about recall. I, I didn't say that word. I just it, said, how do we make them go away? Well, that's how. Well, <laughs> I, uh, well there would be how you would do it. But I mean, you could actually write a constitutional amendment to recall your state legislatures too. Okay? I just feel like if they're not working for. The citizens, you know, I can't believe we have to wait four years. That's at this, point, at this point, we have to change our constitution to do that. Okay. Yeah, but um, we can do that. We, I, that's something we can do. Yeah, I don't know politics. I don't know the whole ins and outs of it. Um, I do know that healthcare and politics do do not mix. And here, here we are. We have non-clinical people that have made clinical decisions that are now having a domino effect that is just not good on people all the way around. In Ohio, it's um, dealing with multiple states at a 
data level, I will tell you that um, we, we used to laugh at Ohio, like it was a joke. And now it's just sad because Ohio is right there with a couple other states and it, it's sad. Um, we have, there's no rhyme or reason to what we are doing here in Ohio. And I would be embarrassed if I was a legislature or an Ohio Department of Health, any of those areas, knowing that the, every other state is laughing at us because we have the most nonsensical things occurring. Like we can't justify any of it. We have cases that are pure nonsense. We have we have post-mortem infections. We have, uh, you know, hospitalizations for COVID that occurred before the person had COVID by like a few hundred days. I mean, we, we've got crazy stuff in this state and they and it's persisted the entire time. The, the, you know, um, Catherine, those fall under, uh, you know, another area that we work in that I mentioned at the beginning, which is the uh, Federal False Claims Act and Medicare and Medicaid fraud. Um, you know, so if if people have information, uh, that kind of discrepancy to me is a, is a clear uh, Medicare or Medicaid fraud case that could be brought against that institution. But we have to have a, we have to have Kind of a complete package of information we need to know you know we need to see the medical records obviously but we also need to see that the claim was submitted and was paid basically um you know when we have that complete set of data then, <laughs> then we are able to do something about it under the fraud statutes and as you may know you know we recovered a, a lot of money recently uh, from uh, akron general cleveland clinic and, uh, you know, we had alleged that Akron General Cleveland Clinic had, yeah, had, had committed a fraud and, uh, and they ended up paying uh, $21 million. Uh, that money was recovered by us and then handed over, you know, basically to the treasury to, to recover U.S. taxpayer funds. So what alleged were misspent. <laughs> they so deny what, they deny the allegation. Of course. Mm -hmm. Would a situation where someone uh, uh, a pregnant woman was pregnant with a child and uh, had COVID was treated in a non-normal fashion and the ended up losing the baby, where I believe the baby was born and then and then passed, uh, basically because of of the the treatment um and the parent received a covid cares kit fall under that I, i'm i'm not sure first of all it sounds like there might have been some medical malpractice that's what first struck me what, what do you mean the covid cares what are you talking about with that when an individual dies from covid uh -huh. You get a COVID cares package, a death package, mm -hmm. which is from federal funding. Did the baby get COVID cares package? Is that what he got? That was my understanding. I, I, you know, I'd have to look at it. I'd have to look at what the authorization for the funds were and then whether that type of thing was covered under that. It sounds like it very well may not have been, but you always have to go back to your document. 
and look at how that authority was granted and what exactly it covers. Um, based on that, and then you've got to see, you know, the claim and the payment. And, and that, that could be a fraud. We'd have to look at it. We think there's a lot of that out there. I mean, right now, in terms of um, institutions taking advantage of uh, COVID dollars. Oh, yeah, this is like raining money, it feels like, for the last 20, 20 whatever months. So, I mean, I, I get it. I bet there is. And, you know, if you can't even follow vaccination, you know, have a database of everybody that had vaccinations and where they had them and how that they had them, then it's absolutely impossible to know where every dollar has, has went. I mean, it's just, I just feel like the whole thing has been a knee-jerk reaction with, like you said, poor policies that don't make sense, you know, or they don't have anything to reflect back on. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure it's that way with how money was spent and how exemptions, you know, all of it. There's just no rhyme or reason. I can't figure it out. So, I mean, I guess basically the question is more about if, if somebody receives that COVID CARES federal funding, that would fall under your False Claims Act. It, I'm saying it could. I'd want to, I, I have not, you know, I'd have to. Because it isn't Medicare, Medicaid, exactly. Actually, wasn't it kind of Medicaid? All I mean, of for, everything is going through. Yeah, let me, let me be so, clear. Anytime federal money, any federal money, military, educational, Medicare, Medicaid, I focused on Medicare, Medicaid because of our conversation tonight. But any federal money that is released to somebody based on a false claim or payment or release of it or federal money or money that should have gone to the federal government that was withheld improperly, both ways, um, you know, and it can be military, Medicare, Medicaid, education, like I said, any federal money. The individual citizen who knows about that can bring a case. They're called a relator and they relate the case to the federal government and can trigger an investigation of whatever happened. Um, so it doesn't even have to be the person who experienced it or anything like that. You can just submit if you know this has happened. Um, every one of us has the power if we have a, enough information to do it. And, and the courts will fight you if you're not intimately involved in it and intimately aware of the fraud sometimes you'll have issues but but no anyone has the right to bring the case what would constitute enough information i like i said it is this thing of you know it there 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 that's the problem there it's like you know obviously the person who actually is involved can has all that information kind of thing but if i'm understanding you correctly if somebody knows of it happening but doesn't have the physical paperwork to do any of it um, um is that enough information or where where would a would a court say you know stop just stop obviously if susie's told billy told you know joe that won't work, but we need, where is that distinction legally? We need to have a paper trail, basically. Okay. So think paper trail. And, and people have brought lawsuits based on paper trails that they got from other people, but they have the complete paper trail. Okay. We want to see that the claim was made. We want proof that it was a fraudulent or false claim and uh, that the claim was ultimately paid. That's sort of an ideal setup. I'm simplifying, but claim made, 
based on a fraudulent statement and claim paid. And that's that's what we want to see. I get it. If you know of the paper trail, is, that's kind of where I'm like, if you know that paper trail exists, but you do not have it in your hands. Well, you can go get it sometimes. Right. Okay. <laughs> we, we, we've, done, we've done that too. I am not a legal expert. I'm trying to be. I'm just trying. I mean, I hear, I'm sitting here, I stare at the data and I can see it happening. Well, but I, I and I can show that it's happening, but I don't I mean, this is not what I'm referring to, but I can see that it's happening. I can show that it's happening, but I do not have and I can even probably show where it's happening. But I, I don't have that document trail. I mean, obviously, this is not the situation I would be describing. But, you know, if you have people who are close enough to the situation to know that it exists, but don't have access to it is basically I don't know if I'm making any sense. We, it it no. does, and I get it. So, <laughs> well, so I got distinction some, here. <laughs> sometimes it can be brought through public data. Okay. There's some complications, you know, if you're bringing it based on public data. I don't want to get into all the detail of that. And not, not, not what I do. That's a completely different story. But if you had, if you had sufficient data, and and then I, I've had a case that was successful brought on purely public data. Mm -hmm. It was actually a housing and urban development, a HUD case, yeah. house sales. Um, but, you know, we found the fraud through public data, brought the case and got a recovery. Everything was public. Nothing was private because, you know, we just matched up, you know, what was going on in the county filings. Uh, we got HUD-1 statements and we were able to match up the fraud and figure it out. Uh, the HUD-1 statements didn't jive with what they were reporting to the county, for example. Uh, so money was disappearing. Um, if anybody knows about real estate, that money you know, yeah. should be accurate. If it's inaccurate, it's a, it can be a fraud. So and it was in this case. Um, so don't, you know, if somebody has the public records or has made a public records request and has analyzed them and put two and two together, we can bring that case. Um, if somebody is sitting in a healthcare environment and is a compliance officer or in the billing, they often have a lot of data. And, yep. um, I, you know, I mean, one of the other things about that is, is that um, there is a privilege when you bring a fraud case to an attorney who's, who will then work ultimately with the U.S. attorney, there's a privilege to that. So it's not a violation of HIPAA to bring that information out and review it with an attorney because you're going after a fraud. So there's somebody in the comments um, and I would encourage them to uh, send a request or get on the website. I don't know if maybe you can show it again. Oh, the website? Uh, yeah, um, because I, I know that they would be a great asset um, because of the, the area that they work in. Bonnie, I, I see, I know the comment. I don't know where it went. I know it's up there somewhere. And she, she actually says Catherine has it as well. So make Wait, sure that you send all of that over to them. It's, it's just my name, you know, warnermendenhall.com. There it is. Okay. If you have it my name, just add a .com to it and you got it. Okay. You'll find Tom and I there as well as some other attorneys. So how long are you going to have us on here tonight? <laughs> I think we've mostly exhausted. Yeah. I mean, we, the problem here is we've had, you know, in terms of this has been such a frustration 
in in our group specifically on Facebook where you know there there are tens of thousands of people who are you know engaged in this and see that it's wrong and and are frustrated by it have called their legislators exhaustively we we protested we've we've done everything we're supposed to do and it goes nowhere and everybody keeps talking about there's got to be some lawyers there's got to be money involved where are the lawyers and and we've always been kind of frustrated by that lack and it's yes. good to have you guys here to tell us you know some of these things because we we ask each other this stuff well is this legal it can't be legal i don't understand it and and i think i think this was was pretty good here well so. for sure there's a lot of people that you know this is probably the, the lightest i've seen that the comment section by light there's a lot of comments there's a lot of them but they are um it's almost like a light at the end of the, the tunnel and there's a lot of oh my god thank you uh, a million times these gents are phenomenal I mean, you guys have a lot of that. I hope you have the opportunity to look at them, you know, when on your downtime that you have zero of. Exactly. Um, just to see it because it is very, you know, I appreciate it for, for them because we can do this five days a week, seven days a week. But well, there, where's it going? If, if uh, anyone knows some attorneys, I mean, we're, we would like to really coordinate because once we get this going, I mean, people can, you know, we, we're allowed to plagiarize in the law. So we're going to be developing materials and briefs and complaints that we are happy to share with other lawyers to save them the time that it takes to develop this. And we're happy to, you know, learn with them what is going to be successful here. So we are definitely looking to build uh, a network of attorneys who are ready and willing to take on these cases and help people out. Because I know, our, you know, we're, and if people call us, have a little patience. Uh, we do get back to you, but we are pretty uh, hammered with phone calls. I bet. You probably need like six more lines or something and four more people answering. I can only imagine. I owe 50 people a return call right now. And uh, I'm not going to get through it tomorrow. And probably another 50 will be here by Wednesday. So mm, that's we're, insane. We're, we're, we're trying to keep up. If I have to, you know, it was great. I, my mind is blown by both of you, but I, I have to jump off here. I actually have to hook up a, a tube feed, but you guys have a good night. Thank you so much. No, thank I you for all you. your efforts and you've uh, <laughs> helped to enlighten us too, Karen. So. Have a good night. All right. Good night. Thank you. All right. Let's end it right there. Thank you guys again for, for coming on with us. And, and it is, it's enlightening and, and somewhat um, hopeful for a lot of us. So hope to see you again sometime. And, uh, oh, anytime. And, and uh, we, are, we are actually, I think we're going to try to do something just on a legal basis, try to follow some cases and get some podcasting out about the different cases and try to talk with attorneys around the country that are bringing different cases so that we can get some insight uh, from them as well. So, um, and uh, if we do start that podcast, Catherine, I'd love to have you on there on our on our podcast too. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's a fair exchange. I'll, I'll, I'll accept that one. <laughs> all right. Good night, everyone. Thank you for joining uh, us. Thanks, thanks for all your work, Catherine.